Here's the word of the Lord. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Amen. As you all know, Pastor Paul is on vacation for the next couple of weeks. And so, uh, I guess uh, he didn't want to hear my preaching, so he said, uh, Pastor Sam, you go ahead and preach while I'm not here, so I don't have to hear it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> but I will be, I will have the privilege to preach the next three weeks. And uh, it's something that I've been asking Pastor Paul for a long time. And so I'm actually very thankful and grateful to be able to, uh, to preach God's word um, consecutively. And I'm excited because this is the first time I'm able to actually be able to go through a certain series. And uh, I chose to go through the book of Job. And uh, yeah, so hopefully God has mercy on me and that I'll be able to get through this uh, faithfully. So let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, uh, have mercy on me. Truly, I need your grace in my life. And I pray, Lord, that your word will not fall on deaf ears, um, but it will be a blessing to hear and produce much fruit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What is the number one question that causes people to reject God. What was the number one question throughout the ages? It's the issue of theodicy. Theodicy is theo means God, disi means justice. So the question is is God just? And the problem behind theodicy is. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient, then how come He does not stop the suffering in this world? And this is the number one question that makes people reject God. And hopefully, after this sermon, Job, the book of Job, will provide us an answer to this question but possibly in a way that we do not expect to be answered. We're going to go over the sermon in three points. The main point of this sermon is that God is sovereign in our suffering. So we should respond with lament-laden worship. And I'll be going over it in three points. The first point is God is sovereign in suffering. The second point is how we typically respond to suffering. And the last point is the Christian's response to suffering. God is sovereign in our suffering. The book of Job is 42 chapters long. And I have about three weeks to get through it. 
buckle up. (laughs) Because of that, I will not be going verse by verse. I will be pointing out key verses during the scripture reading, but I will be summarizing much of Job for us as we go through this sermon. Before we jump in, it's good for us to know the context of Job. Job is in the genre of poetry. It's poetry. Even if you go through your Bible, you find it in an interesting place, right? Chronologically, it actually should be placed within the middle of Genesis. But in terms of genre, it's actually grouped up with poetry. So that means that this book is not meant to give us information about God as a textbook would. It's not a textbook. Nor does it give us clear theological teachings as Apostle Paul does in the epistles. No, it is poetry. So we should read it like poetry. And so when we read it, expect it to be more like a drama or a story where we have conflict, tension, relational tensions, and we have resolution. We have characters that we are supposed to relate with and sympathize with. That's the point of Job. And when we read it, I hope that we can have this mindset. The scene opens up, Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Right off the bat, the book opens up to tell us That Job, man, he has a godly character and he fears God. He fears God up to the point where he has ten children. That when his children start to party, what is Job doing in the background? He fears God so much that he says, just in case my children have sinned in their partying. I will do sacrifices for them. So we find that Job will do sacrifices for his children just in case they sin. That shows how much Job loves his children and also how much he fears God. And this is a side note here. I've, I've done marriage counseling, premarital counseling for about... Uh, three couples, it's not many, but within those three sessions or three cycles, the number one question I get is this, how is a man supposed to lead his wife in the marriage context, right? We hear so much about it, right? The man is supposed to lead and the woman is supposed to submit. So the number one question I get is this. As a man, how am I supposed to lead? Am I supposed to lead my wife like a dictator, right? Am I supposed to tell her everything she's supposed to do? I think Job here tells us, shows us a little insight on what the headship of a husband is in a marriage relationship. The number one important priority for a husband is this, to protect and spiritually guide his wife and his children. We see that Job's priority for his children 
is to make sure, right, that their sins are taken care of. And that's what we should be doing as husbands. And so, husbands, if you're wondering why you and your wife are not going to church, look at yourself. Right? Don't look at your wife and say it's her fault. Right? Look at yourself. You are the one who are supposed to lead the relationship spiritually. And if you, find, if you, if you feel convicted because of that, good. Right? Repent. Come to church. <laughs> and so we see here, the number one thing that God wants us to know about Job, he's a godly man. The second thing we need to know about Job, he's rich. He is loaded. He is loaded. Just a sample of how rich Job was. It says that he has 3,000 camels. 3,000 camels. Just to, to understand today's context, what that means, just replace camels with Teslas. <laughs> you have a man who has 3,000 Teslas in his garage. Right? That's what camels were. They were the most efficient you know, way of transportation in the desert. Right? That's what Teslas are, right? The most efficient. This man has 3,000 Teslas just in his garage. That's how rich this man is. So there's two things you know about Job. He's righteous and he's rich. The scene transitions from Job and centers in a very interesting scene that we get here. We get an interaction between God and Satan. And it's almost in a courtroom type setting. We get insight in the heavenly courts and we see this interaction that is unbeknownst to Job. What happens in this interaction between Satan and God, right? Why doesn't God just destroy Satan right there? That's what we typically think if they were in the same room together. No, but what we have here is actually a certain dialogue that happens. Satan is looking for someone to accuse. God says this in Job chapter 1, verse 8. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan accuses Job and says, God, he only worships you because you gave him everything. God says, okay, take away everything from him. Just do not touch his health. And then Satan goes to town on Job. If you're familiar with the story the moment God allows this, a messenger comes to Job and tells Job, Job, these people came and invaded our city, and you just lost all your sheep. And it seems like the way how the story is, is, is said is before he can even finish his sentence, another messenger comes and says, Job, you just lost all your donkeys. And another messenger comes and says, Job, you just lost all your camels. And before he can finish his sentence, another messenger comes and says, Job, you just lost all your servants. And finally, the final strike, messenger comes and says, Job, you just lost all your children. In a, in a, in a freak accident. How does Job respond? Job chapter 1, verse 20 through 21 says this. The moment he heard this, 
Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are two things we need to notice in this courtroom scene. Noticed, first off. <laughs> who is the one who mentions Job's name? It's not Satan. God is the one who brings up Job. God is the one who brings up Job for Satan to accuse because God says he is an upright man. I fear that God thinks I'm an upright man, so that's why I sin so much. <laughs> I don't want God to think, to let Satan, you know, think that Satan can accuse me and test me. That's why I sin, okay? I'm kidding, of course. But we have here, from the very beginning of God's suffering, or Job's suffering, is controlled by God. God is the one who brings up Job. God is sovereign in our suffering. The first thing we need to know about this, one thing we need to learn about this courtroom scene is God is sovereign in our suffering. God is both the defendant and judge. This means that God is never put on trial. Only we are put on trial. So the question is this, right? If God is sovereign in our suffering, then how is God good? How is God good? This is a tough question. R.C. Sproul Jr., R.C. Sproul's, Sproul's, the great R.C. Sproul's son, the late R.C. Sproul's son, wrote a book called God's Sovereignty in Suffering. <laughs> Sounds a lot like my sermon. <clears throat> he wrote this book because he experienced tragedy in his life. He lost both his wife and his child in a span of a couple months. He lost them both. And from that tragedy, he wrote this book. During an interview about this book, he answers this question. Why should we try to own the sovereignty of God in the context of suffering? Why as Christians should we hold on to the sovereignty of God in our suffering, not push it away? He says this. Everything God tells us is wonderful and a blessing. We try to protect God by not mentioning God's sovereignty in suffering. But God unabashedly proclaims that He is the one in control during suffering. God's sovereignty makes us be able to embrace the hardships that He sends as that which that manifests His glory and make us much more like Him. I'll repeat that because I can't say it any better than that. God's sovereignty makes us be able to embrace the hardships 
that he sends as at which that manifests his glory and makes us much more like him. How can God punish innocent people? Right? You have a, a, a three-month-year-old or three-month-old child die in a car accident. Right? How can you say, God, how, are you, how is that just? How is that fair? How can you bring suffering upon innocent people? The fact, the truth of the matter is, someone like Job, even with all his suffering, still had mercy. Still had mercy. See, we need to remember what, as humans, what we are due. What we are due. What we are due is eternal damnation. Right? No matter how small you sin, it does not matter. Because it's not how big your sin is, is what makes you deserve your eternal punishment. But it's about how holy God is in the presence even of your teeny little sin. We must remember what we are due as sinners. Job actually had it easy. In fact, if God didn't have any mercy on us, this, sto- this story about Job will just be all of us all the time. This will be the norm. The fact that we're not experiencing this kind of calamity even in our lives is God's mercy upon our lives. I, when I pray, I, I've done maybe about like one million, you know, prayers, prayer, uh, meal prayers. <laughs> and during my meal prayers, I've began to start praying like this. I know it seems simple, but it reminds me daily. God, thank you for this food. Thank you for providing it for us. Because you have given me much more than I ever will deserve. Even this food on this table is much more than I deserve. As sinners, we truly deserve nothing. And that's the context that we must remember that we are in when we read the book of Job. We must remember what we are due. The second thing we must learn about this courtroom is why Job suffers. Job doesn't know. All of these things are happening. Job does not know why he's suffering, right? All he can do at this time is trust God. But we know as readers exactly why Job is suffering, right? When we read this, why is Job suffering? The reason why Job suffers is because God wants to vindicate Job's faith. See, in this courtroom, in this drama, in this story, right, you have Satan as the accuser coming to God saying, God, I want to accuse Job. I think his faith is a counterfeit type of faith. If you remember, Pastor Paul coined it this way. He has an only if type of faith, which means that God, I will only worship you. I will worship you only if you do A, B, and C for me. Then you are worthy of my worship. And God says, no, you are wrong, Satan. 
Job does not have an only if type of faith. He has an even if type of faith, which means that, God, I will worship you even if you bless me, you curse me, you bring joy in my life, you bring punishment in my life, the good and the bad. Even if you bring these things upon me, no matter what, I will worship you. And the reason why Job suffers is because God wants to vindicate Job's faith. Uh, there's a movie called Kingsman. And uh, it's, a, it's like an action movie, right? And if you don't know about it, it's basically about this like British secret spy agency, kind of like James Bond, James Bondy type. And uh, the Kingsmen, you know, they go through rigorous training. And the movie's about, right, this main character uh, named Eggie. And uh, one of the Kingsmen takes him under his wing and says, and, and the thing about Eggie is that if you know him, he's really a, a no-life, right? He, he comes from nothing. But the Kingsman has faith in him, and so he brings him and recruits him. And the beginning part of the movie is about Eggie going through the training of what it takes to be a Kingsman. And finally, he passes all the training with flying colors, and they get to go into their very first mission. And during the mission, their very first mission, Eggie gets drugged and passes out. And he wakes up, and the next thing he knows, he's on a railroad track. He opens his eyes, confused and dazed, and all of a sudden he sees a train coming right towards him, and the villain who drugged him comes up to him and says, is the Kingsman worth dying for? And Eggie yells, well, if you watch the movie, he doesn't say exactly this, but I'm going to make it PG for us. He says, yes! <laughs> he goes, yes, it is. And the train runs him over. Next scene, you see him, he's still confused. He opens his eyes and realizes the train track went into the ground and the train passed over him. And he did not know this, but that was his last training. And the next scene you see is his mentor, the person, the kingsman who brought him in, is standing there and he says, good job, Maggie. You passed. You're a kingsman now. See, his mentor knew, right? It's not enough just to know. Right, that Eggie was faithful and loyal to the kingsman. But he needs to be vindicated for his loyalty to the kingsman. We get that in the story. And we're wondering in this scene when the villain asks him, Eggie, are you willing to die for the kingsman? We are left in suspense, wondering what is he going to say? Will his faith, loyalty be vindicated? And that's what we get with the story. And it's exactly what we get here in Job. Calamity after calamity, we are left in suspense, waiting. Will Job's faith actually be vindicated, and how? And that brings us to our second point. How do we typically respond in suffering? Job 2, 9, verse 10, 9 through 10. This is Job's wife speaking. And this is after all the calamity. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job said, But he said to her, 
You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. How do we typically respond to suffering? I find myself more in the shoes of Job's wife. Think about it. You think all that suffering that happened to Job just happened to Job? All that exact same suffering happened to his wife. Maybe even more so. Right? Because back then, your children were everything, you know, as a wife, right, as, as a woman. This woman lost everything Job lost, the exact same things, except his physical health, of course. She lost her livestock. She lost her, her means of living. She lost all her servants. She lost her entire family. And this is how she responded. Curse God and die. Actually, when I was preparing for this message, I, I started to tear up here. I really started to tear up and get emotional. <clears throat> because I, I thought to myself, man, if God really brought a lot of suffering in my life, you know, I, you know it, it might happen one day, but really I can thank God. I don't think I've had crazy amounts of suffering in my life, you know, relatively at least. But if you were to bring, like, this kind of suffering that he brought to Job in my life, like, in my mind, I, I would say, I think I'll be okay. I think I can get through that. <laughs> It'd be hard, but I think I can get through that. <clears throat> but only if, if Sammy is by my side. And I got emotional thinking, but if I lost Sammy also in all the, the deepest suffering that I could possibly endure in my life, I really think that would be a, a true test for me. That would be probably the most difficult thing. And we actually see that in this story as well. Right? It's only after his wife comes and tells him to curse God. You see him go into Job chapter 3, which we're not going to get into. But he goes into his song of lament. That was Job's tipping point as well. This is a side note for the wives. You might think to submit and serve your husband is a a thing that weak people do. But I think from this example, this is more of an anti-example of what wives should do. But I think we can clearly see what, how in the, in the relationship of a marriage, the role of a wife, in the hardest, darkest of times, if your family is suffering, God's not calling you to be weak. God is calling you to be incredibly strong. Even when your husband will falter and fail in his faith, God calls you to approach your husband, to serve him, and to remind him not to curse God, but to worship God. I think it's incredibly difficult to do. I don't think it comes from a place of weakness at all. It comes from a place of incredible strength. And this is what I find. Most people turn away from God not because of rational reasoning, but because of suffering in life, just like Job's wife did. See, most people actually, I don't think they struggle with the fact that God exists. What their struggle is, in the suffering in their life, how could God allow that and thus, internally, what's happening is saying, why should I worship a God that 
would allow that kind of suffering. The reason for unbelief is not because a person does not believe God exists, but rather because they believe He exists, but doesn't do anything about the pain and suffering in their lives. And so my question to you is, how do you typically respond to suffering? Do you tend to draw near to God or draw away from God? Uh, A few few years back, um, one of the, a newcomer came to Cornerstone. And uh, I heard, right, that this newcomer didn't go to church for a very long time. But she started to come out because uh, her mom wanted her to come out. And um, so, as like a pastor, when you're just stuck in church with believers, right, when you see an unbeliever, you're like, yes, this is my time to like exercise my, you know, evangelism. You know, I've, you know, I've been doing all this with the seminary and everything, but I basically just preach to people who believe already. <clears throat> so I decided to talk to uh, this newcomer. Um, and I just figured it wasn't the right place, context, like, you know, right after service. So I said, hey, let's try to meet up and tell me a little bit uh, about why you're here and things like that. So in that week, I messaged her and I said, hey, let's grab some coffee. And, um, and you know, if you have some time, let's talk about, you know, why you're here. So we met up and then I just asked her a few, you know, questions, casual conversation. You know, where do you work? What do you do? Uh, and finally asked her, hey, so then tell me a little bit about your faith. Tell me a little bit about your spiritual journey and why you're finding yourself back at church. And um, she said, well, because my mom. And I said, okay, so could you tell me a little bit why? Or she said, I grew up in church for a long time, and I stopped coming out. And then so I just asked her, so what happened? Why did you stop coming out? And she paused, and I could tell she was hesitating to tell me. Uh, but finally, after a long pause, she decided to say, It's because growing up, I struggled with homosexuality. And my church did not support me. In fact, they did the exact opposite. So I have incredible pain and hurt from the church. I was like, I went to seminary to do apologetics. <laughs> I soon realized she did not need an apologetical argument of the existence of God and why she should come to church. What she needed was counseling. What she needed was healing. What she needed was someone to walk beside her and help her process all the confusing information and, and, and all the all the things that she struggles with, all the conflict that she must be struggling with in her heart in the hardest of times. But rather, the church forsook her and hurt her. And that's why she left the church. I am thoroughly convinced of When Scripture says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The reason being is because I really do think if all of us prayerfully served and loved someone, an unbeliever, and walked them through and walked with them slowly, 
through the struggles of their lives, to show genuine Christian love and care to them, to answer any tough questions that might come up, right, with their gospel lens, right, answering it in a way that actually personally helps them, saying, hey, I went through the same tough times, and, and for me, I would not be able to get through it unless it was God's mercy on my life to get through it, you know, I really do believe that many people will come to faith through that. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Very few of us don't think it's worth doing that and investing. But I really do believe if we do go out, one or two people prayerfully, intentionally serving and loving them, that I really do think at least, at least doors, I mean, salvation belongs to the Lord, of course. I think many opportunities, many doors would open if we were to do that. And if it doesn't, it's okay. So how do we typically respond? We typically respond like Job's wife. How are we to respond as Christians? And this is the last point here. Job chapter 1, 20, verse 22. I already read this. I'll read it again. This is how we are supposed to respond in our suffering. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In Job chapter 2, verse 10, after... He suffers physical health or physical ailments. He says this after that suffering. He says, God says about him, and all this Job did not sin with his lips. See, here, we're not taught exactly what you're supposed to do when you suffer, but we are shown what to do when we suffer. Notice what Job does. He's not joyful and happy, saying, okay, God, it's okay. Right? We have deep suffering coming upon Job. He tears his robe and shaves his head. This is a, a sign in that culture he is in complete despair. There is nothing left of him. But notice what he does. It says that he fell on the ground and worshipped. This is what I call lament-laden worship. You might think it's weird because when we think worship, we think, okay, we're singing and we're happy and joyful. Here we have another spectrum of worship that comes from suffering and lament. <clears throat> How amazing is it that a small country like Korea can have such great influence on the world? In fact, we created an entire Olympic sport called Taekwondo. And this is amazing in terms of cultural influence Korea has in the world, but it's probably the most terrifying thing you can know, <laughs> most terrifying thing that can happen uh, to uh, basically Korean children. <laughs> because basically every first generation Korean wants to become like these Taekwondo masters. So that means our parents, I don't know about you, but my parents, 
my dad wanted to be one of these, not only wanted to be, but he was a Taekwondo master. I remember growing up on the, there's a picture on our wall, and it's just a picture of my dad, like, I could imagine him now doing this, but when he was younger, there was a picture of him literally, like, flying through the air, doing, like, this jumping, flying kick in a sandbag, and the sandbag is, like, completely folded in half because of the force it's been hit with. And I really think my parents put that there to, sh- to, to tell me, hey, do not, do not make any mistakes because this, this sandbag, see, that, that's going to be you, right, if you, if you do anything wrong. <clears throat> and as a kid, when I got punished, I will tell you right now, I did not say, I did not fall on my knees and worship my parents, right? When I got punished, I remember I would run upstairs crying, and right when I got out of view of my parents, I would just utter all of these very creative curse words. I would curse my parents. I would not fall to my knees and worship them. But notice Job. He did not even sin with his lips. Right? How hard is that to sin with your actions? But how much greater is it to not even utter a word of sin, of cursing? This is Job. So the question is, the readers are left in suspense. Will Job be vindicated? And we can see here he was. He was vindicated. His faith was vindicated. And it was shown that he does not have an only if type of faith, but an even if type of faith. We see clearly that Job worshipped the creator and not the creation. That he worshipped the benefactor and not the benefits. He worshipped the blesser and not the blessings. We see clearly here that his faith is vindicated. I remember in college, this was probably the hardest time of my life, I would say. I would mark this as one of the hardest times of my life. But in college, I remember my, my family was so unstable. Like, I remember coming back, to college, like coming back home from college. Like I would never want to come back home because I would never know like what, you know, where to go for home because my parents would always be separated and I wouldn't know where to go. So I just loved just staying at college and just let that all pass through. And, and I remember, but I, I never forgot, like, the situation back at home with my family. My parents were having a very, very hard time, and that, of course, affected me growing up thinking, you know, family is everything, and now the thing that I thought was everything is now being lost. My family, my parents were on the brink of divorce. And I remember going through that struggle. And uh, it was during a a retreat called Servant's Retreat. It's a popular retreat if you kind of grew up in this area and went to, like, the schools in Virginia. Um, Under Servant's Ministry, we have once a year the Servant's Retreat. I remember in that retreat, I was going through that, and I was just, I was so, so angry, so confused about what was going on with my family. And all of a sudden, when I was in college, this song was very popular. <laughs> but the song Giver of Life, um, the praise band started to sing Giver of Life. You know, the, 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 the beginning, you know, drum roll started. <clears throat> and, uh, and I remember singing that song and falling on my knees while singing and just weeping. Because 
when I got to the chorus, this is the chorus. The chorus is this. It says, it's kind of cheesy, but at the time it hit me, it was, you are good. And your mercies last a lifetime. You are good always, always. Every day, your love is never ending. For you are good always, always. And I remember singing that and thinking about the situation at home. And at that time, by God's mercy and grace, I was able to say with faith at that time, that even though my situation around me was terrible, I could still sing and proclaim, God, you are good. You are good. Always. Always. See, the truth of the matter is, we all fail to suffer well. When we see Job, we say, that's impossible. But Pastor Sam, this is a hard thing to do. It's, in quite, it's actually impossible for me to do. And that's, and that's exactly the point. It is impossible to do. That we are unable to suffer well. We are all like Job's wife in our nature, truly. And the whole point of Job is to show us this. That Job points to a better Job. See, Job is not truly righteous. He's a sinner. But there was one who was actually truly righteous, and he suffered for our sin. And the thing is, Job's suffering pales in comparison to the sufferings of Christ. See, Christ did not just suffer physical harm on a cross. But he suffered the greatest suffering, which was to be forsaken by God, his own Father. That the sinless Son of God will take on all the filth, sin, guilt, and wrath of all those who believe. That the one who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we may become children of God. We can look to Christ as a true suffering servant, who by the will of God was sent to the cross. Why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once, and he volunteered. Another quote from R.C. Sproul, Jr. So in our suffering, we can look to the great high priest who suffered as we did, so he can sympathize with us. And I'll end on this note. At the end, the focus is not to formulate an answer to theodicy, right? We're not here to justify God and say, God, can you be proven just? No, the answer, what we're trying to actually answer the question to anthropodicy. Anthro meaning human, right? Anthro, anthropology, right? The study of humans. Anthropodicy. We're to answer the question, the way we answer the question of theodicy is by answering the question of anthropodicy. We learn from Job that God will spare all of us from suffering. We learn from Job that God will not spare all of us from suffering, but rather how to worship in the midst of suffering. The point of Job is not to justify God, but to justify man.
so this is the prayer for the church and myself. If you are suffering or if you are about to face suffering, that we will be able to cling on to God who is, a, who is sovereign even in our suffering. Let us pray. Father, you are good. And for some of us, that might take incredible faith to say in this particular season. And so, Lord, I ask, grant us, by your mercy and grace, a certain faith that says, even if, God, you bring upon all of this calamity in my life, that I will still worship you, that you are still good, always, always. Pray, help us to be able to do this because it's only by your strength we will be able to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.